0: Hello Uh, my name is Oliver Thomas and I'm a junior doctor in South East Scotland. I also have uh, a background in medical philosophy and ethics and I'm a member of the college COVID-19 ethics committee. Through this podcast I'm going to explore some of the uh, the many aspects of ethical decision making in the time of COVID. Now there's already a lot of discussion around why things seem different at the moment in terms of the decisions we're making. There are enormous challenges being faced across the healthcare system and people are seeking to understand those challenges better. I can't promise I'll add much to that, but, um, and probably inevitably, like all good ethical efforts, this will probably end up asking far more questions than it answers, but hopefully by examining some of the issues and some of the ideas being proposed in new publications, we can build a framework to better understand those discussions. And depending on how well this goes, there may be a chance to further explore some of the issues discussed in subsequent podcasts. Now, as I mentioned, I'm a junior doctor and much of what I'm going to talk about will be drawn from that experience. I thought it might be useful to start with a brief hypothetical vignette which can help structure our thinking as we move through process. So let's consider Dr A, who is working as the medical registrar in a hospital one night. Dr A has spent the shift so far taking referrals, seeing patients, giving advice, all the usual things that med regis do. And Dr A gets a phone call from an emergency department colleague, Dr B, who asks her to to come and review a patient, uh, Mr C. So Dr. A says, of course, and, and heads through to A&E, and Mr. C is not looking too well. He's a man in his mid-sixties, he's had a fever and a dry cough for the last few days. Today, he's been getting progressively worse, very short of breath, uh, and now he's drowsy and struggling to breathe. Mr. C is a heavy smoker, um, has severe COPD, high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, and is obese. Dr. B has done a blood gas, which has shown low oxygen levels, high carbon dioxide, and, and his blood is becoming acidic. Now, Dr. A, as a good medical registrar, knows that what Mr. C needs is a period of non invasive ventilation or NIV, where a mask is used to correct the imbalance in his blood gas. In fact, Dr. A notes in the records that Mr. C has had two previous admissions in the last year with similar presentations. And each time has needed niv the second admission was longer than the first but both times mr c managed to recover enough to go home where he lives alone and he has no known next of kin so we've got a pretty sick man sick and getting sicker with a lot of medical problems going on who probably needs that niv if we're to stand any chance of prolonging his life now in pre-covid times there were A few different options for where you might take Mr. C to trial NIV, but because of the cough and the fever, Dr. A needs to treat Mr. C as being suspected COVID until tests can be done to prove one way or the other. That limits where NIV can be done, as it's an aerosol-generating procedure, and so it needs to be done safely in the context of possible COVID. Dr A knows that Mr C's comorbidities do not make him a good candidate for an intensive care unit bed. And and Dr A also knows that there is only one bed available on the ward where NIV can be safely performed. Mr C is too drowsy to talk and there is no information on the computer system about his previous wishes. So in discussion with Dr B, Dr A decides that although there is a chance Mr C would recover with NIV, And though there is not currently another patient needing the last bed on the ward, Mr C should not be admitted for NIV. Mr C is moved to a side room on another ward and is made comfortable for what will likely be the end of his life. Dr A is left feeling very uncertain about the decision and feels it's not the decision they would have made pre-Covid. Now hopefully that's not a position many of us have been in but Unfortunately, these types of situations where finite resources must be carefully balanced are coming to define COVID decision-making. My my key question here is, is why this makes us feel so uncertain or even uncomfortable with the decisions made. It has been proposed recently that this is evidence that we have switched from being deontologists to utilitarians. And and on the surface, this seems a reasonable assessment, but is it? Now, before I look at whether that is a reasonable idea, let's go briefly back to Medical Ethics 101 and define some of the terms. I'll I'll do my best to summarise centuries of ethical thinking in a few sentences, uh, but I apologise in advance to all those I'm going to offend with um, overly simplistic thinking. There are a a few predominant theories of normative ethics that um, that seek to offer models for how and why we do the things we do, and I suppose more so, why we should want to do things in a certain way. One theory that is is often used to examine medicine is called uh, deontology, which in its simplest form is about following rules, Deontology, from uh, the Greek deon, meaning uh, duty or obligation, is the idea that the the moral worth of an action is determined by the inherent good of the action itself, without necessarily considering the outcomes. Um, An early proponent of what what has come to be called deontology is um, Immanuel Kant, who proposed multiple formulations of uh, the categorical imperative, which, um, which proved quite useful when considering healthcare, particularly in what is known as his, his second formulation, where he affirms that, that we must see people and people must be treated always as ends in themselves and never merely as means to an end. Um, deontology has been proposed as a good model for for many parts of healthcare, including clinical guidelines and and the law as it applies to medicine. We won't go too much further down that line of of fitting the two together, but um, that is deontology in a nutshell. Then the second theory I mentioned there was utilitarianism. And if we think of deontology as as the more patient-focused theory, then utilitarianism would be the corresponding society-focused one utilitarianism says again in very broad brushstrokes that um, when thinking about acting we should take all of the possible good and all of the possible bad that might come out of that action at any level or at any time and and weigh them up and and by calculating the sum of all these pluses and minuses we can determine the overall utility of the action um, and thereby try and act according to whichever actions generate maximum utility. So do the most good for the most people. So, for example, utilitarian thinking might support us um, rather than giving one person a very expensive medicine, giving lots of people less expensive but less effective medicines with the same pot of money if the total good done was greater than treating just one person, Um, which is a slightly imperfect but... uh, a rough scenario that that sort of shows how utilitarianism works. So, as I mentioned, it's been proposed that the the conflict some of us are feeling around COVID decision making reflects the pivot we've had to make from thinking and acting as deontologists to becoming, willingly or not, utilitarians. And so thinking about our vignette, Dr. A would previously have admitted Mr. C for a deontologically supported trial of NIV, despite his comorbidities. But but now, COVID pressures have necessitated utilitarian consideration of, of who might benefit more from that bed and whether resources should be more usefully allocated to maximize the utility. We were patient focused. And, and we're now system focused. Is this true? Well, maybe, but I wonder if perhaps there is something subtler at work here. First, <laughs> we did not as a community sit down and decide to all abruptly change our mindset. And I, I admit that it is unfairly reductive of me to suggest that that is what's being implied but it it does articulate the point that there must be something more to it than a simultaneous change in thinking. There are pressures that have been brought to bear by the current situation that have necessitated a change in our thinking, and, and it's the way we have responded to these pressures that I think is the essence here. Furthermore, I think it's the way in which we have and here i 'm particularly thinking of junior doctors, but the the way we have been trained to think about our actions that has potentially set us up for moral risk and resultant moral injury, um, such as the the moral injury that I alluded to at the end of the vignette those those feelings the doctor was having of discomfort and disquiet about the decision they had had to make now moral injury is is a topic that underpins a lot of this thinking and um, is something I'm going to return to a little bit later. So what did I mean when I said there that, that our training has, has set us up for trouble? Um, junior doctors are used to working with an enormous amount of autonomy and agency. And, and I think that's vital for the work that we do. But the system we work in very effectively shields us from the larger concerns associated with our decision. So for example, a junior doctor is is free, um, or at least feels free within the unseen control of the hospital formulary committee. But if we put that to one side, the the junior doctor is is free to prescribe any statin they wish for a patient with high cholesterol. And, And that freedom is unconstrained by considerations of the cost of that drug or further, of consideration of where else savings might have to be made to offset the additional cost of a more expensive static. And this is one of the ways deontological thinking might neatly fit junior doctor action, in that the junior doctor is free without stopping too long to consider exactly what we mean by free, but they are at least reasonably free to act in what they feel is the most appropriate way for the patient in front of them, who who can very much be the center of their thought process. And I would argue that this is largely how we would want the system to work. However, as doctors move through their careers, they are exposed more and more to the realities of delivering healthcare to a population and and not just to individuals. And as consultants, doctors will, will often, if not always, have to take on some degree of responsibility for service design, resource allocation, and and come to consider the maximisation of utility. So perhaps by the time you are a consultant, you have accepted and adapted to the idea that you, you have a broader responsibility. And as a junior doctor, you are normally shielded from this responsibility. But as we have said, these are not normal times. And and the nature of a, a global pandemic with unprecedented pressures on resources is that junior doctors are abruptly being faced with having to consider wider utility. And this is where I think the training element comes in. And I don't mean just that Junior doctors have not had sessions on management, though though largely we haven't. Um, I'm referring more widely to to their ethical training. Um, Medical ethics are taught at all medical schools and and taught well, but for better or worse, the, the nature of medical school is that whatever is taught must be examined and and sadly this often leads to a reduction of broad complex ethical topics and teaching to bullet points on a revision card. I'm proposing that this can lead to unfair and unrepresentative focus on particular elements of medical ethics that maybe more easily lend themselves to this style of learning and examination. I'm thinking specifically here of the four principles model of medical ethics, namely autonomy, justice, beneficence, and non maleficence. And, and where we are taught these, we are taught that by considering these four concepts, we can take any or, or at least most medical conundrums and balance the competing interests. Um, using these four factors to help us arrive at a a best course of action, however we decide to define best. Now, when these principles are taught, students soon realise that, perhaps at marked odds to the other parts of their curriculum, following a set of rules or, or learning certain principles, does not lead to a definitive right or wrong answer and and the gray zones here are one of the the most exciting bits of medicine for for some of us Um, but for an undergraduate seeking an exam answer it can be all too tempting to follow the 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 covert or, or sometimes even overt suggestion that autonomy is the first amongst equals amongst the four principles and so when trying to make difficult balance balancing acts between the four there is this idea that perhaps autonomy trumps in some way the other ones and i think many junior doctors come out of medical training with the idea that autonomy specifically the patient's autonomy we're talking about here, um, is the most important consideration and and as we have discussed this is not challenged by that shielding i was talking about within their clinical practice in the early parts of their careers. And I would argue it's not challenged either by, by membership exams that they take in that period. Now, I'm not in any way trying to suggest that autonomy is not an important part of clinical decision making. In fact, if we think back to Kant's categorical imperative, as a patient I would I would certainly want my doctors to be considering and respecting my autonomy. But I am suggesting that autonomy may not be the sole consideration in the way some juniors and junior doctors may be conditioned to believe. So how does this relate to COVID? What I'm proposing is that in a slight adjustment to the previously discussed idea that COVID has turned us from deontologists to utilitarians, instead I think it's necessitated junior doctors moving from a prioritisation of autonomy to a prioritisation of justice and and it's made us consider our role within the wider system in a way that normal pre-covid practice as discussed shielded us from and i think that the identified conditioning to believe autonomy should be thought of as more important than justice means it feels uncomfortable to suddenly be faced with a situation like this this is I believe, and I am proposing, the root of the disquiet identified in situations like that in our vignette. So there we are, a whistle-stop introduction to some of the ethics of decision making in the COVID era. In in summary, there are many challenges to decision making when a system faces such unprecedented demands, and, and when finite resources have to be judiciously and and fairly allocated. These pressures have necessitated a change in the way we approach the decisions we're making and and in how we feel about the decisions we make. In in the next podcast I'm going to think a little more about how we might take this understanding of the decision making process and, and use it to help us meet some of those challenges. As briefly mentioned there is enormous potential throughout this pandemic for harm to be caused to healthcare workers by the decisions we are making and here I'm thinking rather than physical harm more uh, a mental harm um, an ethical harm and and I used the term moral injury earlier and this is an increasingly recognized effect of situations where decisions and actions are felt to be at odds with what an individual might otherwise wish to do. And the vignette identified a, uh, sadly, all too possible source of potential moral injury. In that scenario, the discomfort was felt almost immediately, but this crisis may not always afford us the luxury of timely reflection. And I think it's it's vital we recognise the potential for moral injury so that we can try to counter it and, and can work to support clinical decision makers now and in the months and years to come. So that's what I will be looking at in, in the ne- next podcast. But but thank you very much for listening to this one. Please look out for, for more podcasts. And if you have any thoughts or comments about anything that I, I've discussed there, if you think I've got anything completely wrong or I've missed something really important, then then please do email me at uh, Oliver.Thomas3@nhs.net. That's oliver.thomas3 at nhs.net. That's oliverthomas three the number three at nhs.net and I I would love to hear any thoughts but uh, thank you again for listening and and goodbye